Hey, happy new year, everyone. Welcome to Dear Warren Podcast, where we do backseat parenting, telling stories, principles, parables, and lessons, and passing them down to my son, Warren. And most importantly, we just try to have fun here. This episode features my good friend, Dr. Tim Vandergast. He holds a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and he also recently got his black belt in ITF Taekwondo. Now, I love doing this podcast with him. We went to a deep discussion about his past moving from North Carolina to South Korea and actually living there for eight years, um, his thoughts on social media, as well as parenting in a social media world. And I think we even got into a psycholo- psychological discussion about narcissism and ended up calling each other narcissists in the most loving way possible. There's so much, so much more. So please enjoy and welcome our guest, Dr. Tim Vandergast. This is the Dear Warren Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and we are here with talk, Dr. Tim Vandergatz. Very, very nice to finally have you here. Same here. Thanks for having me. And I just want to congratulate you, in case uh, people don't know, he's not only a, a doctor, we will get into that field, but he also trains martial arts as well, too. So once again, very, very high percentage of martial artists that come on this podcast. And not only that, but congratulations on your recent black belt. Thanks. It's been a few years, and Mm -hmm. uh, the joke is this is my second black belt, so I did four years Mm -hmm. of training in uh, the World Taekwondo Federation. Yes. But I was young. And this was actually something that just covered in the previous podcast, too, in case people were uh, not familiar, that there's actually, uh, uh, I think, two major factions when it comes to Taekwondo in the United States, WTF, as you said, the World uh, Taekwondo Federation, and the other one was ITF, the ITF. one we train in now, uh, which stands for is it International uh, Taekwondo Federation? That's right. Yeah, and and that's the one you most recently got your black belt in, correct? Yeah. So I did a, a redo and uh, did it again and started over. And what do you think that was as far as a, a, a redo? Was there any uh, particular reason, or was it just like I just wanted to do it all? No, I mean I, you know, first first time around it was getting out of college and feeling like I was getting out of shape and mm-hmm. always curious about it and wanted to stay fit. And uh-huh. I was in my 20s at that time. And this time around, uh, one of my daughters, Anna, was joined the school and mm-hmm. the teacher said, why don't you come back? And I'm thinking, oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs> sure enough, I went back and it's been four years. Look at that. Uh, what is that? Like almost like a, a beginner's mind all over again. Starting? Did you start from like a, a white belt all over again? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How did that feel? Um, I mean, there may have been a, a bit of pride that was, <laughs> you know, it was um, surprised me. But I, I'm okay. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty humble. I'm ready to train. And, and the teacher said, you're going to start again. And, and then I think he jumped one belt at one point. He mm-hmm. said, you can jump a belt, but that's all. And listen, it's completely different. It's yeah. a different time. It's a different... Um, philosophy it's very detail-oriented yes itf yeah and there's a lot uh, i know we've got a good breadth of martial artists that also listen to to this podcast from other disciplines as well too and i think their respect points just jumped for you without within the first five minutes probably jumped 20 points when you said that yeah i started all, all the way over at white belt because 
Um, it, it's, you know, a personal opinion of mine, but it's just something where, yeah, if you're going to go into something else, especially, as you said, detail-oriented, specialized, you don't ask for any gimmies. You just, all right, here we go. Yeah, do the work. Give me give me the exact same start as everyone else, and let me get to that black belt just like everyone else. And once again, congr- congratulations. Thanks so that. much. And uh, as we mentioned in the beginning, Mr. Dr. Tim, as I will refer to you <laughs> from now on in, in, in the podcast, you are a doctor of... Of? Uh, counselor education and supervision mm-hmm. it's like a subfield of psychology it's the best way to explain it and not only uh, a doctor but also a well-traveled doctor as we will get into it and even before the podcast we actually started talking um a word that kept coming up over and over again which i think is going to be a real important part uh, of what we're going to be talking about today especially passing down to warren is that of identity and why don't you just talk a little bit about um as, as you said, home or identity or how that all uh, started. Unpack that as long as you want. Yeah. So I think identity development is something that comes up in our specialty field. You know, we train um, mental health and school counselors in short. So identity development, cultural competence, um, you know, it's diversity, multiculturalism. This is a big... Um, I mean, kind of major force in our field, mm-hmm. for the, especially over the past 10 years. And I was saying earlier that uh, I, I kind of happened upon a conference at Rutgers in New Jersey, of course, um, and the guest speaker was going to talk about home. And I, I guess I, I go in with my bias and think, oh, this is going to be hokey, like pop psychology mm-hmm. and um, like joy and stuff like that. Just talking about <laughs> happiness. Okay. But it, it, it struck me. I mean, she, it, you know, slapped me across the face. It, it was, uh, you know, she was, um, I think she was from Europe and she started talking about home and identity and it just made so much sense to me because, uh, I grew up in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent basically 20 years there and I went away to college and then I returned to North Carolina and uh, I went to college in uh, Rockland County at Dominican College, not far from here in okay. North Jersey. And, you know, I kind of swore off the North. I thought, oh, you know, I did three years there. It wasn't going to be, I'm not going to return here. I went back to North Carolina and uh, went to graduate school, started training in Taekwondo at that time. And uh, worked in the uh, substance abuse counseling field for a few years. That's a common stepping stone out of a counseling mm-hmm. master's program. And then, you know, I had this opportunity to, um, oh, it's such a long story. <laughs> oh, this, these are the type of stories that everyone enjoys. Dude, do, do, don't even worry about it, man. I'll give you the short version. You want to ask me a follow-up, ask the follow-up. I will go me. for it. But I'm warning you ahead of time that you're going to be, you're going to be <laughs> sipping that tea. You're going to be, uh, you know, clearing your throat and you're going to be going deep into it. Yeah. So, uh, graduate school in Charlotte, North Carolina, I was... You know, single at the time out of a long-term relationship. And I'd always had this feeling wanting to travel. I think there were kids. I mean, I can name them. (laughs) Uh, In, you know, middle school, high school, there were exchange students. Mm -hmm. And they went to um, Belgium and Germany. And I thought that seemed so exciting to me. So I think I always had this desire. um, And maybe through some high school connections, I thought, well, maybe I'll leave my job and go teach English, you know. And Hmm. I... I talked to some people, um, someone from the high school, and she said, you know, with your master's degree, uh, you can go to South Korea and you can get this great job with great pay and great vacations. And I'd also heard the same thing from another uh, 
kind of a family friend, church friend. Um, <coughs> so I started poking around, and uh, this was right when the internet was starting to kind of um, grow and spread. You know, I was at the library mm-hmm. punching in on some type of free account on this. Was Google around then? <laughs> no, 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 not even no Google. way. I was Yahoo something? No, no not I, even a search engine. So. Wow. So we, we found some information, and I started poking around, and then... Um, I told my job, I gave him, I said, you know, I'm supposed to give like a two weeks notice. If you want three weeks, I can mm-hmm. do that or something like that. I said, they're like, what are you doing? I said, I think I'm going to move to South Korea. Wow. And they're like, what? Unheard like, of at the time, probably. Too. Yeah, I was tw- at 20, uh, 26 years old. Jeez. I had a good job and single. And uh, mm-hmm. so the plan was to go there for one year. And uh, I stayed eight years. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Um, so that, that, that's a huge segment, right? Of my life from uh, 28 to 35 or so 36. And, uh, back to your question, uh, it was interesting. I, I interviewed for the job uh, within three weeks. I got one of the, I, a job at one of the best schools, language schools in the area. Mm-hmm. And I went into the interview and I said, uh, they said, well, what's your plan? You know, it's like a one year contracted thing. You have to get permission from immigration and all that experience. So they said, what's your plan? I said, you know, I'm thinking about staying here for one year, one year contracts, no problem. And then I'll probably move on and examine some other things. And they said, oh, you know, you'll probably meet a nice Korean woman and get married. <laughs> I thought to myself. <laughs> now, did know. they say, mean that seriously or are they just joking? Or maybe a little bit of column A, a little I column think, B. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they were joking because both of them, I think, had a... This is probably something that they've seen happen like so right, many times. Yeah, this guy, right, coming in thinking he knows what he's talking about. So, um, you know, I was kind of recently single. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to think about that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, um, for me, it was about honestly work and time off where I could travel to other countries. So the... You know, a year later, I got married. A year and a half later, I think I got married, and and both my daughters were born over there. So there's no doubt that that's a significant, you know, part of my identity, and and you know, it was my home for eight years. And mm. you know, I worked a lot, but I traveled a lot, and it's a great home base to jump to other countries all around Asia. And when you talk about, like, this is a huge part of your um, identity, this was eight years in uh, Korea, correct? It was eight years to the month, yeah. Jeez. And even before that, um, you were coming out of North Carolina at, uh, as you said, 26 years pretty much spent here in, in the States. And did you have a sense of, like, this is who I am? Or was it, and, and you were solidified, or was it a sense of, like, I don't know who I am, and that's why I want to travel the world? Yeah, probably the latter. I mean, mm-hmm. not many people, it's just a different world, you know, growing up in North Carolina. We, we, I mean, maybe some of our friends or families or kids would go to the Cayman Islands or mm-hmm. the Bahamas or Vail or something <laughs> like that. And that was really exotic. But um, in this day and age, right, we travel and jump here and go there and we can fly there and we share pictures on instagram and like oh look at me this is where where." yeah as you shake your head at that you're like yeah yeah sure quote travel well i think that when um i'm trying to remember i think uh my first time out of the country but i was it was nice you know it it may have been just montreal honestly that was probably a trip um the mistake was going skiing in february in montreal but 
going to Montreal, I think it kicked everything off for me. That was probably oh. in my, um, I'd been out of the country with my college roommate. He's from St. Lucia. And we, mm-hmm. we went there for four weeks in 1988-ish, mm-hmm. which was amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful, right? Yeah. Um, but I think in my early 20s after college, going to Montreal, I thought to myself, because it's such an international um, city, I thought to myself, man, maybe I'd like to go out of the country. And I think mm-hmm. you're, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, I'm sure a lot of it is about finding identity one, yeah. one of my close friends said i hope you find yourself out there and I just, <laughs> you know i kind of laugh at it but it's really true and it's very powerful was it something that you actively sought or did it just kind of like hit you out of nowhere like oh jesus like this is it's when was there a certain point where you, as you you were sitting here right now you're telling me that uh korea definitely shaped your identity what was there a certain point that um it hit that or is it just looking back in retrospect of like all all these changes from where I was uh, eight years before and then eight years after? I don't know how much reflection I did mm-hmm. at the time. Um, I can tell you that I moved over there in the summer of '97, uh, and like I said, I got a great job and I got rid of all my things um, with except the car and a motorcycle. And I came back that Christmas in '97 and sold the car and motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> so. Something clicked, you know, mm-hmm. something clicked and I, it was, it's a very comfortable place, very international, but also still very, uh, exciting. It's a beautiful city, wonderful people. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's as well as hindsight, you know, you start to look back. Um, it's a special place. I, I, I think I one, one way to answer the question is I, I looked forward and was excited to come home to North Carolina, mm. but I became just as excited to go back, to mm-hmm. go home, to Seoul. And I haven't thought about it much since then. It's a good question. So, <laughs> you know, the feeling when you're traveling or on vacation, you're having a wonderful time, but it also feels good to come back. Yes. So I had a very powerful reaction to wanting to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great to see my family in North Carolina, but Seoul was my home for eight years, no doubt. When you saw that professor at Rutgers uh, talk about home, were there any uh, particular aspects of that talk that you correlate to, whether it be North Carolina or your experience in Korea? Was anything yeah, ex- that really exactly. Out? I think that's why it hit me hit me hard because it wasn't just um, you know. There's probably maybe there are three parts for me. One is North Carolina. One is uh, Seoul. And then now living in North Jersey, mm-hmm. um, I swore I would never come back north again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, these are three big areas of my life that I think kind of shape my identity and maybe help people understand. Um, maybe not seeing me as uh, someone called me a Confederate recently. I thought that was the funniest oh, thing. Well, it was that was in a joking manner. <laughs> okay. It wasn't like you know, cause I had a rebel flag or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I mean the, 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 the stereotype or stigma of someone from the South, right. Gotcha. Um, <coughs> so of course I, you know, growing up in North Carolina or in terms like hick and redneck and all that stuff, I don't yeah. know. I, mm-hmm. Hopefully I I'm beyond <laughs> such a simple, uh, caricature. Mm-hmm. And I would assume because you you brought up a couple of times uh, uh, that you quote swore off the north. Or was there experience after you uh, came out of North Carolina and you came up to as you said uh, was it Rockland County? Yeah. 
And was there any uh, particular experience in uh, particular that uh, you were just like, yeah, this is not for me? Or was it just kind of like a string of all the little things or just like kind of like the uh, atmosphere of what was up around here at the time? Well, to give, you know, to maybe put in more context. So my mm. parents are from Philadelphia, so we've always had a connection with the North, let's say. Okay. Um, and so we traveled quite a bit, you know, in every other summer, let's say, you know, to Boston or to uh, Philly. So um, when, when I was in high school in the South, or even when I was in middle school, soccer was not a popular, you know, wasn't a common sport. My, That's true. Yeah, it was just maybe maybe a travel team was just starting or something like that, but it mm-hmm. just wasn't no, nothing like it is today. So I played um, one year of high school soccer, and it was great because that was really my sport. Uh, kind of came naturally to me. Nice. And but my s- junior high school, senior high school, I end up transferring to out of my town, mm-hmm. and the rule is. Um, you can't transfer and play sports. So I think that was hmm. for recruitment. Oh, okay. You know, you can't poach and recruit just people to come in <laughs> and play. Well, that <coughs> that didn't apl- that didn't apply to me. But <laughs> but being in high school, being an athlete, um, being a soccer player, you know, piece of my identity to have that uh. change in senior high school and and being a strange up new uh, town, right? Uh-huh. So that was tough. But um. It's the way things turn out. My freshman year of uh, college was at a small school down there called Catawba uh, in my hometown, Catawba College. And Mm -hmm. so many folks from New Jersey Northerners go there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, as it turned out, I trained and worked out a lot at the soccer complex. And somehow, I don't know how it happened, the coach said, why don't you come out and walk on and, you know, practice with us, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'd call that like a Division three school at you know, at, um, now, so a smaller school, but I, you know, I got to play with a really talented group of guys, mm-hmm. all Americans. Yeah. You know, I was nice. essentially a freshman practice squad that they needed to scrimmage be, against. Uh, <laughs> scrimmage <laughs> is the kindest word. You know, <laughs> bruises and hit and abuse, but it was, uh, talk about identity. Being part of that team, um, was nationally ranked nice team. And with that jacket, I could wear on campus, you know, it was like a big part. So anyway, so I did a, uh, I played a season down there or two, technically two seasons. And then my high school, uh, soccer coach was coaching at Dominican up in Rockland County. And he said, you know, why don't you think about coming up here and playing and you're going to get a lot of playing time, you know? So that helps kind of, uh, the whole reason I came up was, well, to finish college and to play soccer. And I did that intensively for about three years. Mm-hmm. So that was really the sole reason. Um, and the school at the time, I don't think they were really uh, ready for out-of-state players. Or it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was good. Okay. I had a great time. Yeah, uh, I had fun and good friendships and uh, some some successes. But I, anyway, in, in short, I didn't feel supported Gotcha. So much. And uh, I think I was looking forward to getting back home. Missing it. As far as you said, kind of like home, maybe not homesick, but just as you said, the, 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 especially without that support and then being in so far away from a place where, you know, there's a lot of support probably. So, yeah, I was, I would say 
even though having Philly, a, a fa- family in Philly and uh, Boston and, you know, I could go home or people would come up and see, I, I was definitely feeling isolated, mm-hmm. still part of a soccer team, which gave me a lot of, you know, confidence and, mm-hmm. and identity. And we had some success up here too, which was exciting. This is interesting because I remembered Jess talking to me a bit about like some uh, uh, psychology slash uh, identity as far as I forgot which book it was. And I apologize if it's like really basic, like the, uh, the questions, but it was, it was something along the lines of someone identifying, oh, uh, the person that you, who you are is people identify, oh, it's your job. Is it your job? Is it, uh, or in this case, it sounds like what someone else kind of like thinks of you. As far as like, oh, you're part of a team, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know if the, if if uh, I'm, I'm I'm bumbling around here, That's obviously, right. but if you want to unpack that as far as how it felt for you, because it it sounds um, in a sense uh, with your story about being on a soccer team, the identity identity was soccer player. Here are my teammates. Uh, another place. Here I am with a new Taekwondo federation. Right. Here's my here's my identity, and it seems to be coming in from outside in. So, well, I, I, I think, um, I talk about this with my brother, my, my brother and sisters sometime, or even friends that, mm-hmm. um, you know, some people are academically oriented. Interestingly enough, I, I was the worst student in my family. You know, I've got a brother and two sisters and mm-hmm. I was definitely the worst student, mediocre. I mean, literally <laughs> <laughs> like a C student and that wasn't a big part of my, it's ironic now, but, um, socially growing up, I think I got a lot of support, you know, like, like anybody that goes through a kind of school of hard knocks or challenges or obstacles or family, et cetera. Um, but growing up, I got a lot of support Mm -hmm. socially through friendships and through sports, you know, that was my identity. And Mm. so I think my, younger sister was saying one time she was kind of jealous of me because of my friendships and um you know that's what that was my support group uh socially Uh hooked in with a good group of guys and and girls and then playing sports i mean uh that was a clearly the 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 what do you call the the, being a part of those teams was I'm going to say give me kind of credibility or clout, but it definitely gave me some type it does. of, yeah, it does. you know what it, 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 it does, especially if, um, um, I, I recall there, there were times where even though like I was, I, I had kind of the, the little bit of the opposite where I was, I excelled academically, but I, I did not excel socially. So it was kind yeah. of like, all right, how do I get friends? And like, I find the thing where you found acceptance in sports. I found acceptance in like the few friends where I could talk video games with them. You know what I mean? So there, there, there was struggles on both ends. <laughs> I certainly listen to your show and uh-huh. I, I laugh. I mean, it's hard. I laugh at the video games and the wrestling cause it's hard, hard to relate. <laughs> it's hard to relate to, but it, mm-hmm. I think your point's well taken that, you know, people find their support in, in different areas and we're, you know, trying to, I mean, I don't say recover from, but I mean, geez, there's so many challenges with families and, uh, you know, the kind of the work that I do, uh, crisis trauma, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We're all, you know, working on something and trying to make sense of something and hopefully get some supports along the way. And I think for me socially, you know, I really, really relied on, uh, music actually, uh, social support and, uh, the sports music as in uh, uh playing an instrument or uh as far as like listening and like really be uh 
being a fan of, let's say, a certain band or a genre? I'm, you know, I'm trying to think. I went to in sixth grade. My my um, parents signed me up for a uh, orchestra camp. <laughs> You're talking to a former band camp uh, trumpet captain here. So well, this was like a day camp, you know, at the same college, and and I I would uh, I would bring my cello and mm-hmm. get dropped off and I take the bus. Oh, home. stringed instruments. Very yeah. good. Well, Very was, good. That was my intro. And, uh, and then later band, you know, playing the trombone. But at the same time I started, I think I took two guitar lessons, but I've been, mm-hmm. I, I never took any more, but I've been playing ever since. So nice. Talking 35 years. Uh, 35 years of self-taught guitar. Just messing around. Yeah. Nice. I, I, you know, chords. And mm-hmm. at that time there was no way to, uh, you couldn't pull up chords or anything on the internet. So oh, it was no. like listening to music, writing yes. out the lyrics, uh, figuring stuff out. And, uh, the, old, eh, the old school way, man. Learn by ear. Yeah. Yeah. Very meaningful. And, and, and I, you know, it's exciting now cause I'm able to see my kids excel at the music and mm-hmm. it kind of makes me reflect back on without that outlet, that would have been tough because, you know, maybe at home I could always grab the guitar, you know, was there, Excuse me. Was there a sense of uh, with sports being a physical kind of like outlet and and um, expression, physical expression and identity versus uh, you found with music being a artistic kind of outlet and identity? Is that how you saw it? Or was it uh, something where it was more about uh, you, you were trying to find acceptance in a way? I, I would. You know, I was, I think I was fortunate on the social part. I I never had to. I would never say search for. You mm-hmm. know, it's just kind of natural. Mm-hmm. I, I like people and like talking and laughing, uh, getting along. Um, but I'm sure that that satisfied a part of me. And then the music. You know, maybe there was a. At the time, I would never call myself an introvert. But you know, when there's alone time, or call it lonely time, or you know, being a, struggling through teenage years. Mm-hmm. Um, having the music to rely on was really helpful. You know, one, one thing sometimes I talk about teaching classes, even introducing myself to, to students is that, you know, I, I grew up, um, with an undiagnosed reading disability and and it makes a lot of sense. Now we didn't have, um, 504s and IEPs and all these accommodations, Mm -hmm. child study teams and psychologists Mm. in school. So I was always good at uh, math and science and social studies, but in terms of English and reading, it was a real challenge for me. So mm-hmm. that, you know, I didn't figure out until till graduate school, I was in my mid-20s, wow. that, that I had a reading disability. It's a type of dyslexia. Mm-hmm. So that always kept me back in terms of reading, but also helped explain why I struggled in school and why I mm. didn't enjoy, you know, novels and reading. And, you know, my yeah, dad's yeah. telling me you need to read the three musketeers and Moby Dick. And I'm like, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not, not as enjoyable for me. Dad. <laughs> it, and it's, re- there's, uh, there's a legit reason why it's not because the, the story's bad or anything. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was interesting to find out, but it helped mm-hmm. kind of explain a little bit of my, um, struggle and then why I probably leaned so much on the social right and athletic and mm-hmm. and but I did enjoy music it definitely um songs listening to songs writing out lyrics um 
over and over and over. I mean, we did have tapes. I had albums, by the way. I still mm-hmm. have those albums. Nice. Um, but it was a lot of tapes, you know, rewind and writing down lyrics. And it could have been <laughs> anything from Ozzy Osbourne to James Taylor. Awesome. Pretty wide range. And when you uh, you, you talk about overcoming, it was basically a struggle, it sounds like, overcoming and getting to your master's and, uh, master's and, 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 and doctorate. And when you do handle... Uh, kids or uh, youngsters growing up, is it kind of like you're 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 giving back in a sense of like I totally understand where you're coming from, and these are the proper methods to break through or to um, guide you along the way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you you really put a lot together with that <laughs> information. But mm-hmm. you know, one of my specialty areas, like when you work in counseling in the field, and it could be psychology. You know, you're either a social psychologist or you're interested in developmental psychology. But the work that I do specifically is play in child therapy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you hit the nail on the head because I'm sure uh, it's a redo in a kind of way. <laughs> For me, it's a way of um, um, kind of giving back and better understanding kids. But you're getting into a topic, you know, it's, of course it's personal, yeah. you know, and, um, I'm sure I don't fully understand it, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that when I work with, um, and I'm glad to talk about working with some kids, mm-hmm. it's a challenge, um, to work with such young kids, uh, five and six year olds who come from very, um, traumatic, um, disadvantaged backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, I get, to. Um, kind of suggest and model for them and find good things that they're doing and say, you know, uh, encourage them. And I don't have to ask questions or mm-hmm. order them to read and stuff like <laughs> that. I mean, the teachers can do that. I'm not a yeah. teacher. So. so it's more guidance as opposed to like, this is exactly what you have to do versus... Well, there's different theories, right, in, mm-hmm. in, in counseling and therapy and um, and play therapy. And there's kind of two schools. One is we're going to do this activity that I've chosen for you. Mm-hmm. It's going to help you in some way. Call it, you know, build coping skills or communication or mm. um, heal you. And there's another school of thought that says, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't need to teach or guide you, I can just be with you mm-hmm. and I can create a relationship with you and have this experience with mm. you. And through that, you're going to heal yourself. Very interesting. And that's, that's, that's awesome on your part, because this is, as you said, the word just came up over and over again, healing. Mm. And it's, it's one thing when someone like just quote, you know, I'm over way well oversimplifying this, but you know, can't handle, uh, doing something but then as you said something traumatic where not only is it because they can't do it it's also because an external factor of some sort really prevented them from doing said activity whether it be reading or what have you and in this case it's kind of like there's so much negativity or something associated with let's say in this uh, oversimplified example again apologies of reading where you have to work through that in a sense or and you can totally let me know if I'm way off on the, on, on this. <laughs> I, you're, you're way on in many ways. Oh, okay. I mean, I think, I mean, to use the example of my, um, you know, maybe my father pushing me to read um, 
when I was having trouble, you know, reading <laughs> comprehension and maybe some uh, attention deficit. But, um, you know, I mean, he was trying to teach me based on what he probably grew up with and how he was raised. And I think that's what a lot of parents do. And right. I, I know that's what I'm, you know, so probably consciously and subconsciously doing this well, too. Well, that's, I so. can tell you it's unavoidable. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but... I think for me, I'm a um, bit of a different person and different mm -hmm. learner. And now we talk about, um, you know, different intelligences, mm -hmm. like, like with you with music and martial mm -hmm. arts and um, maybe me with, you know, sports for some time. But uh, no one was talking about it at that time. No one was saying, hey, we really value that you're mm -hmm. a different, you know, different person, different thinker. So, um, now I think, at least maybe the way I've, maybe right you know raising the girls it's um you know acceptance and meeting them where they are and i mean i don't know who'll cringe hearing this but when hmm. <laughs> maybe anna but when anna's you know was 10 years old or 12 years old and came home with really low grades in mm -hmm. math i wasn't concerned yeah i'm not gonna go um into that mode of mm -hmm. you know <laughs> tiger tiger parent mm. But I said, you know, you're you're good in other areas, and you're you're good in the other subjects, and I'm not going to stress over it. Mm -hmm. We saw some pretty low scores <laughs> over the years, but I I, I haven't changed, mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm sure that's a direct result of my experience, and and also the way when I work with young children in therapy, you know, it's just not about me teaching and my expectations. It's mm -hmm. more about valuing the human, you know, valuing yes. them as a person. And, you know, my hope is that it will contribute something to their own healing process. And I'm no doubt it's contributing to mine. It's a, it's a very, uh, and the first thing I thought of, and then you can see where my, my mind goes to is, is a, it's a very jujitsu type of way that if they're, they're coming at you and you're trying to, you know, you're meeting head on and just nothing is like moving, like why try to like, you know, bash your head against the wall more, but instead like let, all right, go with the flow of it and then find another avenue of remedying the, the situation. You brought up an interesting, um, uh, terminology before of, of tiger parent. Have you, uh, run into those? And, uh, in, in case people don't know what that term is, if you want to kind of, uh, go into that a, a little bit and, I don't know. I, I've seen articles where they, they almost like glorify it in a way or, and other articles, of course, vilifying it. But yeah, I guess there was a story It's probably five years ago now mm -hmm. about a mom and she was either somewhere in the Northeast could have been up in anyway, somewhere in the area where maybe she wrote a book or was well known for the way she was raising her daughter or pushing her daughter. And we're talking about, um, um, yeah, academically pushing, yes. pushing, pushing yes. the the sports, the um, not just the sports, the music, and all these areas to develop, and um, probably with a goal of getting their child going to an Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. And I believe the woman was—I'm pretty sure she was Asian, you know, Korean uh, Chinese. I, I think that's where the term comes from. Why they use the term tiger, right. as, as well, too. And uh, in case anyone was wondering, no, my mom was not a tiger mom. My mom was a dragon mom. <laughs> so we'll get into that later. But go ahead. <laughs> Maybe I should start asking you some questions. <laughs> um, but I think um, uh, South Korea is pretty well known for being a high achieving, but unfortunately a very high pressure uh, mm -hmm. school system um, with a lot of uh, stress and teen suicides. 
because of that stress. Um, so, uh, so Young's Korean. Um, we, fortunately, she's never been that kind of that personality. And we definitely have friends, uh, you know, hmm. who, who push. And, and I remember uh, one of my colleagues who, um, she's also from South Korea and she said, Oh, they were very excited when her daughter got into a boarding school at age eight, eight. And I'm not saying that she's a mm-hmm. tiger mom, but you know, the path, I think mm-hmm. culturally speaking for many, uh, um, families from other countries or immigrants that, you know, it's a different mindset. And mm-hmm. I, I also, uh, respect that. Um, but for me personally, and I think our home environment, it's not a high pressure. It's not a pressure mm-hmm. cooker. Mm. Well, <laughs> plenty of pressures in other ways, but in terms of going to, um, you know, Princeton or yeah or Yale, that's not first and foremost on my mind. Yeah, just to just to semi-explain that that Dragon Mom thing, I just it, it, it's 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 a joke. It's pretty much this what she used the same method that uh, you're using, as far as I'm pretty much raising you the the way that that I was raised. And also at the same time, uh, it's what she knew, you know. And at the time, it was more so of, like, uh, I think I shared uh, this story of, uh, um, I was bad at math, <laughs> believe it or not, going into, el- el- in, what is it, third grade elementary school, multiplication. And the, the long story short of it is is that my mom basically went to the teacher to ask, what do I do? What do I, what's your lesson and, and what are you trying to do with them? Okay, cool. So basically, I, when I was done with the lesson in school, guess what? Come home. The lesson continue, continues. And uh, sat down with me to work me through the, the times tables. And you know what it was back then. And it, it also is a reflection of like, you know, how the, the, the education techniques were at the time, which was sh- just straight, you know, uh, memorization. Your uh, three times tables, that's specifically what it was. I remember flashcards, just, all right, what's this? Three times seven, three times ten, three times four, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I remember about my mom. The other thing I remember was that there was one point where we were supposed to choose a book for a book report. But I was sick on the day that, like, legit sick. Like, I had a cold, I was throwing up or whatever. And, uh, and, And she was like, wait, when do you have to give your book? report when do you have uh your book for the book report and 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 i was like uh today march me to the school i remember kids were coming down like in between classes to my homeroom teachers saying this hand it to show this is the book that you're giving for your book report i don't know that's how uh, you can diagnose me further there i don't (laughs) mind that i i I like free consultations (laughs) what is interesting though you know is um with Warren being so young and, you know, my kids are now, uh, 13 and a half and 16, um, you know, wrestling with back to the original question, you know, our kind of parent identity and Mm. we think we're going to do things differently or we Mm. think we know what we're doing, Mm. but I can tell you there's stuff in there that's unavoidable. Mm. Um, you know, when, when my kids say, Oh my gosh, you're so much like grandpa. And (laughs) that's enough to drive me over the edge, you know, (laughs) Um, <coughs> I was watching before you came here. There's a new season out of Black Mirror. I don't know if you watched that on Netflix. You know what that series is? I don't. Uh, basically, they take uh, whatever current technology that we have now, and they do a storyline, like an hour episode of, uh, of a specific type of technology. They go f- 
five to ten years in the future. So not something too far. But then they try to give like a really worst case scenario what could happen with said technology. And so I saw an episode, spoiler alert, of uh, um, uh, one where the mom gets uh, basically like she's so afraid of uh, losing track of what's happening to her daughter that there's basically a chip she implants in her head. There's a service for it, too where she can then open her iPad and see exactly what the daughter is seeing. She can tell when the doctor, not the doctor, when the daughter uh, gets like an adrenaline spike or she hasn't, uh, there's like a narcotic alert, et cetera, et cetera. And it, the, the premise of it is that she's just going through uh, uh, elementary school and at a certain point, like she, she doesn't want, she promises her daughter, okay, I'm going to turn off this, uh, the app. But then at a certain point in going through through high school, she turns it back on to like monitor her. And it just shows uh, what can go wrong when you are so concerned about your child that you want that you if you had access to your um, um, child's vision or what or their older memories, what what would happen? Well, it's interesting. I went to a, a presentation uh about a year ago and actually I took I took the girls um, with me because it was about social media technology and mood mm. and I thought it was um, I, I, I study at a psychoanalytic clinic which is really fascinating in Livingston and I've been studying there for some years and I, I knew I could take the girls to the presentation it's like open to the public and it's a discussion and um, they brought up a similar topic that you're talking about I don't I don't watch too much stuff on TV or Netflix. Oh, that's that's because you're awesome. And that's really, <laughs> really, I commend you for that. Well, but they talked about exactly this, and that <laughs> is that we, you know, the screen time and social media, but we do expect our kids to, you know, we text them and call them, and we expect to have them on a, I'm calling it kind of a leash. Mm-hmm. So some of what you're talking about is already being done. Yes. That is, you know, I expect you to get back to me. Mm-hmm. I expect you to call me back. So he's in North Carolina now with my mm-hmm. mom for a long weekend. And, uh, you know, I'm very aware that I'll call her and, you know, she has a cell phone and I expect mm-hmm. her to, you know, I'm yes. kind of monitoring where she is and, um, you know, I'll be wrestling with her, finding her own, you know, high school and soon to be college, maybe identity but the technology is already there, and we're already uh, kind of tracking them, if you will. Yep. And and obviously, this one's, a, as I said, they only advanced it five to ten years in the future. So it went from just like the phone to now there's a chip in your head. And then you're able to track your uh, your kin through that, that chip in the head through an app that you can activate and turn off. And then, anyway, that's that's how that story went. But you actually brought up a topic that I'm sure is near and dear to I would say 99% of our listeners, which is social media. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a good rabbit hole to fall down, especially when you relate it to identity, because I was thinking of how, um, there's a, it's almost what you were doing going through life as far as a, a student an athlete, and then, um, a college student. And then as a, as, as a doctor, you were focusing on yourself and now, when I personally, and I do it from time to time as well, too, I'm not saying I'm, I'm above this. I, I mean, I, I, everyone has fallen into this trap at one point or another of leading a double identity. You have your one where you come home and like uh, you, you, you ch- 
trip over your kid's toy or you, you bang your knee in the coffee table, you go, ah, you know, you, you, you scream. And then, but when you post on social media, like every picture is perfect. Here's me hanging out in Aruba. Here's me, you know, skiing in, in the mountains of Colorado, you know, but no, 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 we're not going to post that picture of me, you know, uh, passed out on the couch with a hangover. Well, maybe you would, depending on how, um, you know, self-deprecating self -deprecating you want to do. But um, I don't know if you want to... That's, that's the kickoff to, to the topic. Social media, a little bit of double uh, identity, and just kind of like the, I guess, the stress or the psychology that goes behind holding that up and, and kind of juggling that. Yeah, that's going to be... Um I mean, uh, a, a huge, continuing to be a huge topic in certainly mm -hmm. psychology and research. Um, at the same, I just thought at that same presentation with these very uh, esteemed psychoanalysts in the room and PhDs all around, um, they asked my, uh, I think Zoe to stand up and explain some stuff about social media, which was fascinating, right? Yeah. So she said, yeah, I'd be glad to talk about um, uh, Snapchat and what's, what what stories mm -hmm. are and and what is an insta and what's a finsta wait what was that last two uh insta and finsta right so you can I explain that to me Jeez. i had the same reaction because here <laughs> i am right this you know mm -hmm. this uh father and you know i've been to school for many years and she Dude, was i'm having i'm having the same reaction i'm a software engineer so, so. <laughs> so she was explaining to this room of you know psychoanalysts and phds which was mm -hmm. really great to see her stand up and talk about it and it's exactly what you said so there's an instagram and finsta just means fake instagram so it's the double life and here i am my teens are teaching me live and others mm -hmm. that kids actually use a insta and finsta um and this was, you know, maybe this was a year ago. I'm sure they still use it. Oh, so they it? actually have an Instagram where they have all their follow. You know, it's a facade. It's their mm -hmm. persona. And now they have two. They can present. So they're, so it's two accounts. Is it essentially two accounts on Instagram? One of them, your real one, and one of them kind of like a facade one? Yeah. Well, well, that's a good one, right? Facade. But it's it. Fake. Mm. Fake Instagram. So mm. they actually are controlling. I thought, it was, I thought it was a totally different app. No. Two accounts. Gotcha. And they have the two identities, which I think is really interesting oh to God. yeah okay as, as far as the psychology and the work that we do um i mean gosh with technology and you know i guess they're like apple watches now and i'm sure there's yes. other brands but you know now my colleagues got one for just for her birthday students <laughs> you know you <laughs> see the eyes shoot down at their watch and they're they're swiping off a, a mess but no i mean this is yeah, all yeah. a fascinating part of our of society and i i think what's exciting about the work that i do or at least counseling and therapy, which is so intimate, mm -hmm. is, and I'm sure there's some uh, technologies that are you know, incorporating <clears throat> uh, social media and talking about that, but it's just so personal, right? Yeah. So it's a small, quiet room, hopefully comfortable. And, you know, when back to the term healing, when you're dealing with somebody's pain and tears and stuff, it's talk about a double life. And I'm the same as you, you know, I'm sure I've been in a restaurant with the girls and, mm -hmm. We both had our phones out where we're looking at gotta our phones check the Instagram. doing stuff. Well, <laughs> got to check the likes. Got to see who viewed it. Got to see who commented. I do like do taking you know, pictures of my food. Do you, know what the, <laughs> do you know what the average uh, number of times a person checks Instagram a day? Take a, take a wild guess. 40. Oh, that's really close. It was, I, I think it was like 37 yeah. or something. But 
Great guest, you know, a day. That's the average person too. 40 times, well, 37 one, times the a day. One thing to tie back into psychology, and a lot of people are probably familiar with this concept, but talk mm-hmm. about conditioning. Oh, of, um, go ahead. Go yeah, into that. Well, to, to, to pull up the phone to, um, I mean, gosh, one student tried to use a, uh, it's a stro- the strobe light. Have you ever seen someone use the, the phone has a function on the light that mm-hmm. will, when a message comes in, it'll throw a strobe. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like a notification. <laughs> yeah, but it's so obnoxious. Oh, I, so, obviously. I mean, it, Jeez. and so, and I say, well, you have to turn that off because, but, you know, it could be the, the, the blue light, the message light, obviously mm-hmm. the sound. You can program all these different ways, but, man, mm-hmm. it's totally Pavlov's dog. It's mm-hmm. Psychology 101, <laughs> and it's, the, and, the, and the watches, you know, yes. we're conditioning ourselves with a, literally a light goes off and we're, we're looking, mm. so... Yeah, you can set notifications for if someone comments or if someone uh, likes your post or your picture. It, it, uh, what is it? Like on your home screen, notify. Oh, so and so like likes your post. You can block it, obviously. Well, but also, what the what one thing that came up at that same presentation <coughs> was what the companies are doing, because they are also which send, companies? The social um, media so, companies. Let's say Facebook. That's okay. probably the one I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have a we'll call it an algorithm. They are bunching messages and sending out your likes they're controlling they don't come they don't they say mm-hmm. they don't come out live mm-hmm. they're they're releasing them at optimal times to to hook your brain for the reward for the for the pellet for the, for, for you posting for the hit of well for, for the the reward system it's the mm-hmm. the likes are the reward right so 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 you're saying if uh the the they delay when when they alert you that someone uh, likes some of the content that you put up. Is yes. What? So it's it's happening both ways that these companies are, you know, I mean they're not updating your likes. Let's say at two a.m. or four a.m. But if mm. they know your work schedule, or they're going to mm-hmm. throw out a blast at eight 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 in the morning or something. When you're most or, likely to be looking at your phone, right? Or, to get oh. the reward. So there, mm-hmm. there's a talk about that. I I, I don't have any expertise re- in that area, but there's uh-huh. a lot of talk about that. I was reading an article that uh, one of the former Facebook execs, uh, this was this was out like two weeks ago, I think, this article. I'm sure people have seen it come up. And what was funny about it was that this article was on Facebook. <laughs> so basically saying, yeah, when we created, we we didn't intend it to be like like this, like or, or kind of like admitting like we screwed up as far as the addiction that, that comes with it. As far as the addiction of, uh, as you said, Pavlov, Pavlov's dog, where yeah, it, it's it's the response, and then when you get that res, uh, response of all right, I'm gonna open my phone, see the like, and then what happens? You get that bit of endorphin rush, yes. which is the chemical release over and over that uh, gives uh, a, a sense of you know varying degrees of pleasure for yeah. for us, and that and that type of endorphin rush is the same thing as um, when they do studies on people who gamble and they pull on the on the roulette, yeah. the, the 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 slot machine, same thing. Same thing. And the rats get a little hit of cocaine. and Oh, there you go. No, same, <laughs> yeah. same thing. For some and reason, they prefer the cocaine over water. <laughs> right? Can't figure this out. Well, wait till they try Instagram and Finstagram, and then, <laughs> and then they'll be, be preferring those likes that, that come in. And, yeah, so how do you, yeah, so we were talking about the, the, the double identity, which, which was interesting, as you said, Instagram and uh, a Finstagram. And, is it because of they want to lead these two lives specifically to is because one of those lives gets all those likes or 
is someone so greedy that they want to double the amount of potential to receive uh, likes and to double the amount of endorphins? What do you think? I don't know. I think that um, there's some way of controlling their circle of friends, like how genuine they want to release information, mm -hmm. I guess, the trust levels. Um, so they have one that's a big, broad, you know, um, groups of friends and they accept lots of people and maybe they don't have deeper relationships. And then one of the accounts, I guess, has mm -hmm. a much tighter group of friends or people they trust. And, you know, I'd have to ask the girls if they're still using this, but it is an interesting, I mean, it, the, the technology is just flying by me, you know, at this, at this point. But it, it, it's rooted in basic kind of like psychology in a sense, as, as you said, where it's like you can make the app as flashy as you want, uh, especially if they start going towards a, you've heard of AR, right? Like augmented reality where, you know, you, you put this, you can be taking a picture. I can be taking a picture of you right now. Then all of a sudden, like the, the icon comes up. I see all your likes. I see what food you've had. I see where you've checked in all instantly through, I, it could either be through a phone or if I wear glasses or, or, or a visor that no matter what, <coughs> excuse me, technology medium, even if it's a contact lens, it all boils down to some type of uh, getting you to use their service. And, and what better way to get you to use their service than to make it, quote, addictive, in a sense, with that endorphin rush. Well, I don't want to go into conspiracy theories. <laughs> I think that the, the topic's been brought up on the show, but... Um, the idea that this is a lot of people gathering, you know, information and database and, and, you know, learning about your marketing, you know, it's a marketing, so it's a yeah. two way deal. So they're getting information that's companies are, um, learning about your likes and dislikes and selling products and mm -hmm. access maybe to your information. I don't think then, as far as that, that, that's conspiracy at all. I think everyone is kind of expecting it, especially like when I, uh, I remember one time I almost ruined a, a Christmas present or a birthday present for Jess. I was looking up like watches for her. And then like on her feed, a bunch of watches started like coming up. You know what I mean? That That's, I was like, come on, Facebook, have a little bit of, ch I mean, they've, they've tweaked the algorithm since yeah. then. <laughs> I was thinking more of a big fat file of like everything. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> that we text. The file. Picture. Yeah. Since, since you were born. There we go. And well, this is this is the this is how it doubled or tripled since Facebook started and you started using it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as far as the and and you went back uh talking about where when you would help people individually and there would be healing with it. I would also is it a safe assumption to say that there's like yeah, you might want to put the phone down or you might want to get away from is there any type of like recovery that they've had to do as far as from social media or it hasn't gotten to that point yet i'm not familiar with it you know mm -hmm. we all like i said we all kind of specialize in areas and mine happens to be uh you know working with young children and child therapy but um i think just a few days ago they finally maybe it was the world health organization diagnosed uh video game addiction i think mm. as a you know a health concern and so i'm sure social media and addiction and all that stuff's coming you know, That's an interesting one for us because, as as you've heard on some of our podcasts, we do do video games, and uh, we we comment them uh, as well too. But I would say maybe about twenty percent of any of those podcasts was me complaining about like, yeah, when I play this video game, I sit in the couch, and then like I get fat, and then like I don't work out. So, as much as we preach about video games, get outside, you know, put it down. But all the you know you've talked about, I think on the show, it's all mm -hmm. moderation. You know, as yeah. long as you're not 
neglecting, you know, work and family <laughs> to that extreme or staying up all hours of the night. But um, addiction is, uh, there's a lot of uh, years ago, con- um, maybe disagreement about uh, sex and pornography and is mm-hmm. that an addiction? Um, again, not my specialty area, mm-hmm. but I, I hear the argument, you know, is it a choice? Is it a behavior? Um, I find it interesting, but um, not something I work with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And it, all, the, all those aspects... Whether it be social media, as you were going with uh, uh, with pornography, or even with video games, they're all techno- technologically related. In, in other words, there's someone behind there working yet another algorithm to get you to engage more in in, in said activity. So I don't I, I don't know. As as we saw with with each one, there is some semblance of like a Pavlov's dog with a little bit of like. The, what happens at the end, some type of endorphin rush, whether it be a huge spike of it, whether it be indirectly, whether it be the anticipation of it, you know? So I don't know. You, you, you probably hit something there like, Oh yeah, they're all kind of have something in, in, in common. And it's, it's interesting because it just, it's man-made and it kind of like messes with like our natural, like wiring of, of what goes into place. It's funny you say that. I was just thinking, you know, we're talking about neurons and yeah. paths and um, new wiring, you know, that a lot of people talk about. And, and uh, neuroscience is another area in psychology and counseling that's really um, continuing to grow and change. Um, something you said oh, about the um, um, well, narcissism, which I guess we can talk about that at some Absolutely. point. But yeah. there was something else you had just said. Um I can backtrack here on my notepad, but I'm a scrambled all over the place. But it was a bunch of it was social media related thus far. So um, it'll come back to me at some point. Maybe. Cool. And maybe if it we'll... doesn't, yeah, if it doesn't, it just it just flies by. Um, I was about to ask you, since I, I did bring it up of just like how there's a lot of things current in technology that have just kind of we're being exposed to for the first time, especially I know you say like, uh, uh, you know, Instagram was what within the past five, ten years, whatever. It's still a it's, a, it's a blink of an eye, and within this time with social media exploding and the connectivity that happens. I mean, I have, uh, I don't know. I know Jess has like almost like six hundred, eight hundred quote friends on Facebook or something like that. Well. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, she, she's a rookie. I have like, you know, 3,000 or, or something. It reminds me of the, the term of uh, Dun- Dunbar's number, which is uh, the, um, the number of people you can actually consciously hold in your mind and recognize and uh, individualize. Like, oh, I actually recognize that person versus once it goes past uh, knowing a certain amount of people, it, it becomes fuzzy. You're like, ah, uh, who are you again? You know, I guess you seem familiar. And I think that number is low. It's like around 150 or, 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 or something like that. So what I'm ask, asking you is, is kind of like, are, is, is this hyper connectivity to just a lot of people and, and, and really hearing all this noise Again, how is that affecting well, from a from a I guess neuron neuron wise or psycho, psychological wise of just that type of social interactivity or, or what you've seen or your opinions on it? Um, it reminds me of um, I think there was a <coughs> period with Facebook where you were just like inviting 
like everybody, right? <laughs> come one, come all. Mm-hmm. And this uh, total, um, you know, huge number. And then at least for me, I went through a stage of, you know what? I think I'm going to start, mm-hmm. <laughs> start, start, I mean, they call it the term unfriend, but you're mm-hmm. kind of filtering oh, out. Oh, that. The great purge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I need to n- knock this number down. But yep. again, I'm sure there are, there are specialists out there who research as we speak about all the benefits and gains of this. Um, but a friend of mine, it, I asked him one time, I said, why aren't you on Facebook? And he said, it's like a, you know, this false sense of friendship. And I thought that was so interesting mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he said that. And I said, you know, we email and we text. And he said, but, you know, it's kind of touching on what you're saying. What are all these numbers meaning? And it, it reminded me of... um. My kids call, talk about YouTubers. I mean, that's a completely different world. Oh. And the number of followers, mm-hmm. you know, it's like an industry. And mm-hmm. um, it, in short, I don't know what the answer is, but <laughs> I can tell you it's related to narcissism. <laughs> okay. To go back to that topic. I would love to get in, in, into that topic because I, I think that also, we're, if I do start asking more questions branching off of what I just asked about, you know, hyperconnectivity, I think it, I think essentially it's all going to boil down to a, a, a certain sense of narcissism. If, um, and I know, <coughs> excuse me, narcissism is, is when people bring it up, I think they bring it up in a very kind of like surface, uh, way of just like being very selfish and all about someone's, um, just, you know, being self-centered essentially. And it's, it's brought up with like a negative connotation. But is there a, a better, if you would expand on it further, more clinical, so people can kind of understand, like, because usually when people hear something that's, like, negative, they just shut it off right away, and they're just like, oh, well, I'm not that, you know, I'm not a, but it's kind of like, eh, well, everyone's got a little bit of uh, a shade of it, especially when you, you know, you're taking your selfie, and you're, and you're, and you, oh, I just got to get it just right, it's a, it's a shade of it, right, or... I don't know. Go ahead and correct me, Doctor Tim. Well, it's a more than it's more than a shade of it. <laughs> I can tell you that. I, okay. I mean, I'm again uh, studying at the psychoanalytic clinic uh, in Livingston. I, I enjoy it so much. It's so challenging for me, and um, I mean, this is one of the central uh, themes or concepts. And I agree with you that people use, you know, in kind of a pop psychology or everyday life. So it's such a narcissist, you know, or you're full of yourself kind of thing. But um, for modern analytics, it's a, it, it, in short, everybody's a narcissist. Okay. Um, that it's about um, living and being seen and staying alive and having meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there's a clinical diagnosis as well. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's just too much. You know, they need, they need to be seen. But I think it's really tied mm-hmm. to what you're talking about with social media and these likes and these friends and... Um, putting on this facade showing, you know, I need, I need to be seen and I need this attention. Um, but I, you know, in, in psychoanalytic terms, narcissism is really not a bad thing. So, you know, a lot more. Really? Oh, it's a normal part of, Mm -hmm. of life. And I think when it gets to an extreme, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's when everyone hears that, that, uh, spectrum of it. And then, and that's where they associate like that negative term. For yeah, it, I think the they, negativity with it. They use uh, I, I based on the, the Greek myth, right, of um, mm. the story of nar- narcissus, narcissus, narcissus. Yeah, um, and the f- reflection and loving himself, but it goes so much deeper than that. So yeah, we we 
I, I'd probably have to refer you to an article, but sure. they, um, it goes much deeper and it's exciting and interesting. But again, I, I joke, I, I joke, but I don't joke with students. I say, of course I, you know, I like them asking questions about me and mm-hmm. ask me questions and cause mm-hmm. I'm a narcissist and they kind of laugh. Um, but in short, it's about living, I think, um, living, surviving and, mm-hmm. and what's the opposite of that. Mm. So in, in, a, in a way then this is, it's almost narcissism is, is essential to, to, to human, like a, like a certain degree of it. Uh, is it selfishness then? Is it kind of like, it has to be about me in, in a, in a certain sense? Well, I think it's, it's really complicated as well, but, um, oh, of course, yeah. You know, I think that's the way we think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, someone says a narcissist or I'm very narcissistic, but, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe too much for me to be able to talk about here. Oh, no yeah. problem. It's As, fascinating. Does it, does it relate also to, um, because we started talking about identity as, as, as well too. So maybe a, a, a cooler path would be to, to take narcissism and, and relate it to identity where you've, I, I'm sure you've, uh, been in arguments before with, uh, plenty of other people, whether it be over a sports team, whether it be over, no, so-and-so that, that this didn't happen in a movie. And no matter, no matter what you try to, to tell them, they just won't, will not budge or just the age old problem of we've run into people who just quote, really can't admit that they were wrong in a sense. Is, is that also a branch off of yes. narcissism? Okay. Yes. I mean, I was thinking as you're talking, it's really sure. helpful. Um, you know, anyone who wants to do a little research and, and, and psychoanalysis has changed a lot and it's mm. very uh, multi-layered and it's much more relevant than maybe it was 20 years ago. And what you're referring to are the defense mechanisms and, you know, narcissism is probably a defense mechanism as well. So, the central um, maybe concepts in the what they call modern analysis is uh, transference and defense or resistances. It's it's really simple in some ways. You know, they talk about life and death, and they talk about um, resistance and transference. And do you want to go into a? I think since we're on the topic of. <laughs> defense and this is just it's it sounds like it's more for like uh, as you were saying for for life and and survival this is this is just like a certain state that someone g- goes into because they it fe- the, the that feeling of being wrong is almost like correlated to like oh my god you're actually attacking me that, that there is a possibility i could die right That's here. exactly oh, no. what it is perceived threat really yeah Absolutely. So, uh, uh, what was it? Narcissism is, is one of those defense mechanisms or it it, it was, uh, Oh no, I'm not wrong. Is, is one of the defense or is it, I'm sorry if I'm using the, the, either the wrong terminology or the wrong examples. Uh, if you could, cause you, 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 you divide it, uh, you call it defense mechanisms. If you could give like probably like a, an intro to people's basic defense mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, there's anyone can Google, find eight to ten of them pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where uh, Freud and I believe his daughter Anna Freud were, um, they were wrong and a little bit uh, off in many ways, but really? also very right and okay. on in many ways. And the defense mechanisms is one. Um, Denial is probably the most um, well-known. Um, 
you mentioned before an argument, you know, and mm. people, the, the tricks come out and it's um, off the top of my head, you know, denial, repression, projection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably heard these terms. Um, and some other complex ones, you know, sublimation. And, I want you to assume I'm just a, a backseat parenting dad. And when I nod, I'm actually shaking my head. <laughs> when, when you say, oh, you've heard of these, right? <laughs> no. So go into it as, as, as deep as, as you would like, because this is, uh, the, the, the heavier you get in, into this stuff, I think the, the more people are going to be like, wow. So, no, I mean, you really said it well earlier, the, their, their attacks and mm-hmm. the, the, the resistance is the, as much as I can take of the attack. And when I get to a point where I can't tolerate it, I'm going to bring up the defenses and protect myself. And it's a kind of, uh, I mean, you said it perfectly. It's an attack or mm. perceived attack. Perceived attack. So it's, um, you know, survival. It's evolutionary. It's I'm going to, I need to survive. It's kill or be killed. Mm. Sounds very dramatic, but, but that's psychoanal- how they... psychoanalysis is very dramatic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And it, what you were saying there, it sounds like there's certain levels before that defense mechanism actually gets like uh, uh, triggered where they start bringing up the wall. And so it, as you said, it was almost like perceived attack. Is there something that pers- that uh, precedes even when those defense mechanisms get in- engaged where they, as you said, they perceive it as an attack, even though it probably quote, isn't a, a, an attack. I guess at some point, you know, you comfortable talking about topics Mm -hmm. um um and then a button gets pushed and Mm. that's related to the concept of transference a button gets pushed and the person says no (laughs) i can't deal with it or you're wrong or gotcha i'm gonna intellectualize i'm gonna rationalize yeah don't don't cross that line don't go there Mm. smoke and mirrors kind of to change the subject you know and what is transference um Maybe a basic way of explaining it is, um, you know, I have a lot of past experiences and it's based on past experiences. So, Mm. um, I have mine and you have yours and then there's this kind of, um, connection that comes up. I mean, it's typically, uh, it can be conscious or unconscious. So if Mm -hmm. you see somebody that looks like somebody, you know, that's a kind of transference. It's all based on past experiences. So anecdotal evidence, in, as someone would say, or, well, be, I know this person, so, or I, I this yeah, happened to could, me, so it could you're just, wrong. It could just be energy, you know, you sometimes oh. you really like someone or you have a connection with someone, and so that's a positive transference, and then some people you don't even know, but you already dislike them. <laughs> but that, the, this, the, the, the concept's know, based on... Uh, unconscious past experiences let's go in that direction because argue, arguing and 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 uh, uh debating or the, or those type of conversations uh tend to be a little more more conflictive and they, they usually end up a little more divisive mm-hmm. i like what you just brought up there of uh transference in the set of i just like i just don't like you like for whatever reason when i when i look at that person oh you know is it is it that that gut feeling that we we sometimes get when we're looking at someone and then we're just like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that person. Yeah. It's, it's unspoken and unconscious. It's powerful. Yeah. It's in, you know, intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes we're blind to our own, you know, we don't know why we behave a certain way or why we react a certain way. Mm-hmm. But many times it's a transference. And then as far as the transference to like the more positive thing that you were bringing up there, where I can't, I can't help. I, I actually, I, I dig this person or I really, or, or I really like them. Is there any particular levels that, 
get get traversed in order to get to that point. I don't know if we're able <laughs> to control it exactly, but you know, earlier when I think in in the discussion you asked about or I talked about music and guitar, and your, mm. your eyes eyebrows go up or you oh, kind of yeah. shake your head. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a positive understanding it's not really spoken we don't talk guitar we played guitar mm -hmm. uh, I mean, mm -hmm. one time you know yeah, it's in yeah, the same yeah. room and we got to play a song together or something but mm -hmm. anyway that's a kind of a maybe a, an example of a positive transference like an unspoken kind of uh gesture eyes go up eyes turn little smile mm -hmm. because maybe a you know I mean, a very among uh, martial artists. Yeah, among same like thing. You, you're 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 on uh, an inner circle, whether it be a group of a group of friends or a group of friends that have interacted previously, and so that that's more of like an inclusive type of energy, and in a, in a sense. Yeah, that. and then I suddenly thought back to um, the example about parenting and my father. You know, it's hmm. not all not all good transference. So <laughs> it's like a. One goal in therapy is to work through some of that and better understand it and have some insight and be mm -hmm. aware of where some of these feelings and our thoughts, feelings, and you know, behaviors are coming from. Um, maybe even working with young children, I'm trying to provide this kind of uh, esteem building experience. And, mm -hmm. you know, kids and I have a pretty good connection. And sometimes you can't really explain it, right? You can't put your finger on it or you can't quantify it. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, Hopefully there are these positive influences that they're feeling. It starts to get into, I don't know, psychic is really the word, but, you mm. know, energy, you said, yes. well, um, you know, why I like being around this person, why I dislike being around these people. Mm -hmm. And in, in that method of, or when you are engaged and attempting to, as you said, the ultimate goal is, is, is to heal. It's kind of in, in, in a way where I, I would assume that, you know, when you, first uh engage with them there's probably a, a lot of defense mechanisms that come up or is it uh something else where they're they're coming to you and there and there is no defense mechanisms is, is is that like the procedure of like all right this is what i have to work with here one one way yeah to illustrate it with young mm -hmm. children is um because developmentally the big the big difference is and when I, when I teach a play therapy class, you know, I present cases to students in the first class. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I present cases for 16 and 17-year-old kids. And, and my students are trained. They have experience. And they um, I present the case and they kind of conceptualize and they think about theory and approaches and techniques, et cetera, relationship building, rapport building. And then I flip the script on them and I say, okay, now the client's six years old. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to use the same techniques. And that's the, probably the best way to explain a little bit about what I do. And that is mm -hmm. adult talk therapy doesn't work with young children mm -hmm. because of cognitive development mm -hmm. and brain development. And, uh, and kids can say a lot and they can understand a lot, but there was great limitations for a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. Mm -hmm. And so that's what my work is rooted in. But um, back to your question. So, I don't ask a lot of questions. Actually, I ask very few questions. Um, consulting with the um, school district and working with kids, the behaviors in, in school are very, uh, you know, they don't need to be classified or a special classroom, but the behaviors are clearly telling some story of something going on at home or some trauma. I don't ask those kids questions, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So I use the metaphor of play or art or materials. Uh, mm -hmm something called Santre, where 
I can go in and let them work mm-hmm. and um, play, mm-hmm. and they can communicate that way. It mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense for me to ask them a question. You know, True. one of the one of the kids is uh, five years old, and his mother died of a heroin overdose nine months ago. Mm. And it's terrible, and mm-hmm. so he's a kindergarten student, and I I'm very fortunate. <sighs> Man. It's heavy, and but mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate because I get to go into the classroom and I can set up a little corner with my materials, and I go in. and One goal is to support the teacher because the teachers are often stressed and overwhelmed with the kids' behaviors. Oh yeah, I can only imagine. So I get to work with the child in the corner, and I get to have a 20-minute play session, um, sand tray session, something like that. And mm-hmm. So I, again, I'm not home. I'm getting to your question, but no, for me to directly try to access something, you know, and his experience yep. doesn't make sense developmentally. So I use another way. And, mm-hmm. and again, um, instead of coming in and asking about his family, mm-hmm. which, but he tells me a lot about his family anyway, mm-hmm. if you listen and he talks. Um, so I think we we're talking about the transference. So I'm trying yep. to provide that positive experience for him. Mm. And I mean, some of the stories are, are tough. It's tough mm-hmm. to hear. Uh, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. for folks and uh you hit the nail on the head too when you said uh that yeah these uh adult techniques don't uh, apply to kids and i think when i was asking you that question i was going from the mindset of like here's an adult you know here's a doctor he's got his playbook you know that playbook of everything ready to go and here's all the science behind it and i'm going to throw the book at, at that's the way i was thinking about it as a as a you know um, uh, non-informed, uh, uh, back, backseat parenting dad, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and I'm sure you probably have to talk down certain parents of like, no, that's not what it, this is. This is the tech. Well, this is what I do. It's such a good point because, um, parent, what they call, let's say parent training for lack of a better term, you know, maybe <laughs> parent coaching. Okay. It's a huge industry and potential and, mm-hmm. Some of the work that I do, it's often, you know, you're consulting. You don't just work. Well, in the school setting, I don't meet the parents mm-hmm. or caregivers. Um, but in clinical settings, mm-hmm. you know, obviously an adult has to bring a four or six-year-old into the play therapy clinic or room. And you are expected to, well, you have to consult and you have to communicate with the parents. And then sometimes you can make suggestions, but boy, is it obviously a fine line. Mm. Um this the school consultation work is so rewarding and powerful and maybe that's because i don't have to talk to the parents um <laughs> but really the goal in this school district in in new jersey it's really amazing is to what we found is it's well we can't change the the child's home situation or family situation but what i found i'm in my third year working out there is um the teachers are so stressed so we talk a lot about wellness and self-care for the teachers. But mm-hmm. again, how they can best use my um, experience is I come into the room and again, I set up in the corner and the kids know me and they say, they raise their hand and say, can you take me today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is very rewarding. But there's kids that are also troubled and tra- uh, traumatized and mm-hmm. the teachers know a lot about their background. So I usually work with them um, maybe eight, 10 times a year. It's very powerful. Again, I don't want to tell stories and get everyone tearing up. So, well, if you if you, yeah, it's the holiday. Well, well <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't want to go down that path either. Yeah. We, we, we don't want to go down the, the, the emotional tugging strings for the sake yeah, of How many people have cried on the show? What's that? I, I, won't, I, I was crying out of laughter a few times. <laughs> um, but how about we, we turn it around where these virtues that you, you have, because this is an incredible amount of empathy and patience and compassion that you have. How have you, because uh, we've, we've also brought this up with, what you were saying that you got your black belt. How has this helped you as far as have you found any type of um, parallel uh, b- between between the two, whether it be martial arts to uh, your work or the other way around? Or does it kind of like round out in, in a way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, I don't know if you said it on the show or we talked about it before. Mm-hmm. It's such a process of learning. Mm. And I've heard it on one of your previous broadcasts. Um, martial arts doesn't end, hmm. you know, you, you don't become, uh, you know, black belt's not, not the, the end and mm-hmm. you can be a master and it's not the end. It's mm-hmm. such a process of learning. And I had a great experience, um, in my twenties with Taekwondo and working out and learning, but the experience in the recent four years here in New Jersey with, uh, all-star Taekwondo, I mean, the amount of detail and learning and, you know, got black belt and I'm still, obviously, as you know, mm-hmm. going back and relearning and learning mm-hmm. new, you know, from all the old material. And yeah, I would say that's a complete um, uh, parallel to, you know, our growth and learning. So the work that I do with these kids and um, um, I'm completely learning about myself and mm-hmm. I'm also, uh, I don't mind saying I'm a, I'm a patient of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So a few years ago, it was four, four years ago, I don't tell exactly how long ago it was. I, it's just a stressful event and I mm-hmm. felt like I wanted to see a therapist. So, and in our field, they always encourage that, right? If you're going to, you know, be a therapist, you should know what it feels like on that side of the, the, the chair in our case, it's a sofa <laughs> literally. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's where I'm able, um, you know, I go once a week for four plus years. Mm-hmm. Once a week for four and a half years is a pretty good commitment. And I tell people and students, I say, I feel like I'm scratching the surface mm-hmm. because I'm completely learning about myself as a, you know, 10 year old, as the, you know, mm-hmm. kid picking or strumming the guitar and trying to learn chords as a teen and, and how I am with these kids. And I would say, I would argue all of this is connected. Yes. You know, it's not, we're not talking about separate topics here. So that's where I do my work. You know, it sounds cliche. No, it's not cliche. It's, it, not it's, cliche. it's, it's real. On. It's, it's, yeah. it's once a week on the sofa and mm-hmm. I talk about my stuff and I'm able to kind of reflect and put things together. And absolutely it's related to the, the work that I do with these kids and, who I am as a person and mm-hmm. I'm developing and learning as a professional, as a, as a father, people have asked me, you know, how did I get into play therapy? And I said, mm-hmm. I was a struggling father mm-hmm. because it just so many new things and, um, doubts and frustrations and dealing with my own learning, I guess, and tr- trying to be different, you know, maybe than, than my father, but at the same time, mm-hmm. there's no, there's a good books out there, but there's no, as you're finding out, probably there's no parent playbook and mm-hmm. how to be a good partner or, um, et cetera. So I, 
it's all connected and it's all a process of learning. And, you know, I think what's, what's exciting about martial arts or education and teaching, um, we're going to be learning throughout. I think uh, one of the things uh, another dad had given me as far as like advice for because I remember asking, uh, I, you know, John, Nick's friend, uh, we uh, I was I asked him one day just before I had Warren or I was we were expecting Warren. I go, so and he had already uh, had a few years with his daughters. I go, do you have any advice for, a you know, new upcoming uh, dad? He goes, well, you know, you, you read a lot about it. You can watch a bunch of videos and you, you hear about from other parents. Then when it happens, you kind of just throw it all out and then you wing it. <laughs> this is so true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that for me, that was the nice part about connecting maybe the personal with professional because at the time I was in the doctoral training program and you have room to take a couple elective classes and folks remember what, you know, it's very limited. You might mm -hmm. have two or three elective classes and Zoe was uh, four and Anna was one and a half and the instructor or one of my mentors said, you got to take that class because it's like an advanced child development. You know, it's clinical. It'll teach you about play therapy. And mm -hmm. this was 2006. And quite honestly, I built a career out of it. So <laughs> it's not a bad deal. But the point mm -hmm. being how I interact with the girls and how I'm as a parent, I do draw on. I, I'm, I fail all the time <laughs> as, a, hmm. as a father. But... I do draw on some of the techniques. You know, I'm not a play therapist at home. I'm not a child therapist. I'm mm -hmm. not completely empathic, maybe as I, I would hope I would be. But when I'm at work, I can turn that on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, talk about the different faces, you know, or <laughs> mm -hmm. personas. I'm also struggling human and struggling father. So, um, uh, you know, <laughs> PhD on one level and then. You know, believe me, it's I'm, I got I'm humbled at home many, many times. I think now that I think back to it, as far as like, just like how my dad was, was trying to do it. I think we, as, as it goes down from dad to dad to dad, I'm sure from mom to mom to mom as well too, from parent to parent is that you, you, you take the, the <coughs> original blueprint of what you can recollect of, uh, out how they raised you. And then you kind of like whittle down a few things and I'm going to, I'm going to change this thing. And then here's what I'm going to uh, attempt to apply. And I think that's, uh, it, it was a direction with, with, with my dad as well too. I think he was always very set on like, as, as, as you were saying, when you would come home and you would not be uh, the play therapist, he would come home and he was a lot more direct. He would, cause my dad was, uh, uh, his title was architect at the time in New York city. And he would come home and he just sit down he go, Eck. When you grow up, don't be an architect. <laughs> so <clears throat> he had his reasons, though. I, I think uh, the basic reason was like he he wanted me to get into something that was uh, more objective based as opposed to subjective. He wanted me to do something where because um, he had his personal experience where he worked his ass off and then like he showed the designs to his supervisor at the time. He goes, nah, I don't like it, you know, even though everything was structurally or what what have you all in place. And so he said, do something where, um, um, if they ask you what two plus two is, you can tell them four. And if they don't like the way that you said it, then they can go F themselves, you know? So that's how, you know, I, I, 
I, I, I compromised with my dad. I said, all right, I'm going to play guitar. I'll do the computer science degree, but I'm going to play guitar when I get out of college. So I bet you showed him. <laughs> Maybe in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> but that was that was an example of, you know, what, what I had to do when, when taking a little bit of my dad's advice to heart. And then, you know, we'll see what happens when I go in with Warren. What do you... I think this is a good point to, to wrap everything up because this is a fascinating um topics and and unpacking deep in in into some of them is there anything else you'd like to pass down to uh either jess or i or or warren or to the parents who listen to this podcast or anything in general yeah i mean the one one thing maybe to wrap up on is and it's something i've seen with these um the teachers that i work with in the school district um you know, the first year I started working out there, I was working a lot with the teachers and I created a nice relationship with them. And then mm-hmm. for the past two years, I've been now going into the classrooms and helping with activities and some, most of the time doing some of my own work in the corner. Um, I would say the, uh, you probably um, heard before the, the, you know, when you're flying the oxygen mask metaphor. No. So when you're, when you're flying, what do they say? I'm sure you're oh, flying yeah, an airplane. Yeah, uh, put the put the mask on yourself first before you uh, get it get it to your kid. Yeah, so this is probably more for parents uh, rather than Warren, but it also has mm. its benefits for Warren. Mm. But I, I I talk about that a lot, and and the ter- talk um, the topic of wellness and self care is something that we in our field talk a lot about, and we don't always do, and that's why I talk openly about my own therapeutic experience. But the idea is. You know, in case the cabin is ox- loses oxygen pressure and the masks fall, adults, please put the you know mask on yourself first before administering to your child. And to me, that's an important metaphor for the adults and parents. Hmm. Um, you know, we have great ideas <laughs> how we're going <laughs> to be these great parents and we're going to be different and we're going to be these amazing parents. But, you know, we have our blind spots too. And I same thing I tell those teachers, you know, I know you want to help these kids, but you also have to take care of yourself. And mm-hmm. so like um, all the you know, topics in our field in psychology coming out, I think wellness and self-care is another one um, that's continuing to grow. And, and I think it's probably a good thought for parents to consider. There was something that I had, I had read years ago, and this I, I brought it up on on the last podcast where I had, where I started getting into my boss at my, one of my first jobs was getting me into like a time management, and it was a book called Time Management for System Administrators, and it talked about prioritization. It talked about in any case, there, there was one thing. There was a chapter in this book that was actually really it it hit me that like oh my god. I really don't know how to do this. It said how to prop the, the, the chapter was called how to properly take a vacation. And, uh, the gist of it is, is that everyone thinks they know how to quote, relax or take a vacation, but then, you know, you get your two weeks, right? And then what do you do? You end up checking your email. You end up like reading articles about like think you, you basically stress yourself out even more, maybe less than at your job, but it basically tells you do this, you know, turn off the email, turn off this, uh, uh, make sure that you give yourself a few days at the end of your vacation to kind of like ramp back up to, to work mode. So it was a print, it was a primer on how to relax at the, it, it was like, 
so I actually kind of like you, you, you brought up the word cringe earlier on in the, in the, in the podcast. I actually cringe when people like tell other people, oh, dude, just relax. And it's kind of like, do you even know like hmm. what you're saying? Because everyone just takes it for granted. Oh, you just go and lie on the beach all day. Uh, it's well, that's uh, one way to, to, to go about well, it. And hopefully unplug, yeah. <laughs> unplug, um, you know, related to what we talked about before, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe one final thought is, um, so I was thinking, um, Zoe was born in 2001, and I was in uh, South Korea and playing sports with groups of guys, of course. Um, <laughs> great guys. And, mm-hmm. and, and Zoe was, I mean, two weeks old, three weeks old. And a basketball guy named Joe, he looked at me and said, just enjoy it because it's going to be over with before you know it. Mm. And I thought to myself, what is he talking about? Mm. His kid was a senior in high school at the time. And then I thought, oh, Joe has some, you know, good advice. And here I am now, Zoe's 16, and <laughs> she was uh, touring NC State a couple of days ago with my niece. And, you know, and she said, yeah, I'm ready for this now. So mm. back to your point about not only the oxygen mask, maybe ideas for parents, but I think I'd pass on to other people and you, um, you know, again, indirectly impacting our kids and Warren is... Mm-hmm. You kind of smile and laugh now, but mm-hmm. you know, it's always driving and looking at colleges. So <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Jo- so Joe everyone, was right. <laughs> yes. So as, as you make sure you enjoy it because it's going to flash by uh, in, in a blink of an eye. Huh. And, uh, and, and just so in, in case people, people don't know, uh, I did a quick pause on the, on the podcast just to do a time check. And speaking of time, Dr. Tim has uh, another uncanny ability, which is to know exactly uh, the amount of time that passes when you ask him. And he nailed, he just he nailed it with <laughs> right on the money. So My mom would be so mm-hmm. proud. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you, Dr. Tim, for, for, for being here. This is a great discussion and wealth of information. Well, really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Eki. Thanks to Jess. And hey great to be what a great experience fun experience thank you so much and we hope to have you on another time we'll see you with the talking yet another topic my pleasure thanks that is it folks your therapy session with dr tim is over free of charge and we hope you enjoyed it uh be sure to get in touch with us at dear warren podcast at gmail and on instagram and on facebook once again as always thank you for listening and all the support we love you all and tune in next time for the Midweek Podcast.